Bom bom bits, a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, with Chappy and Pip. Bom bom bits, two young brothers. Bom bom bits, talking college football. Bom bom bits, and life and humor. And some funny ass clips. So relax and unwind with a bowl full of chips. Hey, 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 college football fans, how the heck are you? We are starting episode 59, where we recap week five and look ahead to week six. And gosh, Biff, you know, even as I say that, it's still kind of almost a sour taste in my mouth to think that we're that far into this season. It's like I want to slow the train down here a little bit. I mean, we're already into what I'd like to call slight separation Saturday, and, and we can touch on that. But how you been, man? Oh, not too bad, Chappie. Uh, you and I luckily got to spend uh, last Saturday with uh, one another watching all of the great college football action. Uh, for those of you, you may have seen Chappie tweeted out, we had three yes, TVs going at once. And I got to tell you, it was pretty cool. It was like we had our own private beat-ups to enjoy Saturday the way it was meant to be enjoyed. And it's going to be difficult going back to one TV at a time this weekend. But I know. Well, I'm on. still going to try and hook up my two, maybe a third, depending on how ambitious I get. I am going to have some, <laughs> some beautiful little visitors with me this weekend. So I might be a little bit altered in that. But nonetheless, that's the beauty of the iPhones. Sure. That's the beauty of the Internet. And that's also the beauty of DVR, Bip. So when it gets to be bedtime, you can go back and relive the days and, and kind of shut yourself off from the Twitter world. So that way nothing maybe gets spoiled. But... It's good to have technology, right? Yep. Absolutely. So here on A Bowl Full of Chips, we are college football's increasingly relevant national podcast, and we love to bring football closer because college football is our passion, and delivering the deepest and most insightful analysis to you is our mission, and we do it with pride. I am your co-host, Choo Choo Chappie, and with me is my co-host that's delicious like French toast, Bip. Bip, I want to thank you again for taking time out from your great life to spend with me and the TV's and maybe a little bit of beverage in college football Saturday this last weekend, brother. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to do it again for you sure. I'm soon. And we want to thank you guys for joining us each week and listening. You're always welcome. And we want to welcome you to rate and review our show wherever you can. Tell us what you think and tell the college football world what they can get by joining the party. Hit us up on Twitter, too. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC. You can also visit our show's Twitter page on at Bowl Full of Chips, where we post our website with a number of resources and information aimed at quenching your college football thirst. You can also find links to our previous podcasts. But then again, if you subscribe, you can get them anyway. Hint, hint. So contact us, if you will, at <laughs> bowlfulofchips at gmail.com. We really like the insight and bits of information that you guys provide us in the Twitter world and the emails and the DMs that you send us. So Continue to keep us well-informed, and we'll return favor. And we hope to keep in tune with the insights and analysis that helps inform and entertain you. So, Bip, week five is in the books, and we each have some of our thoughts. So let me start off, and I'm going to hit to a team that is near and dear to your heart, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, who took on a pretty good going into the game Virginia team, but a, a team that we talked about, I still needed to see something out of them, and this was going to be their real first real test. And I got to say, I was a little bit nervous for you going into that game uh, in the first half anyway, but Notre Dame completely put that to bed in the second half. And what I learned was that Notre Dame's defense is very good, especially kind of limiting Bryce Perkins. They were popping him left and right. And also, I was happy for Irish fans to see that that run game came alive. So Virginia came in, I believe, with like the seventh best rush defense in the country. And Tony Jones, essentially their second or even third string running back, depending on who you talk to and how you look at it, came out with 139 yards rushing, three touchdowns. I think he came into the game. I don't know if he had one or maybe not even any, but he had three in the game against the Wahoos, a team that was notably good at stopping the run bit. So that's one thing that I learned about your Irish this Saturday. Yeah, and and speaking of that uh, Notre Dame defense, that pass rush showed mm -hmm. up in a big way, and that was one of the points I wanted to touch upon as well. Julian O'Quara, Khalid Kareem, 
have been kind of quiet for the most part so far this year, but they combined for five and a half sacks and an additional three quarterback hurries while forcing a fumble and recovering another. They were all over Bryce Perkins in this one. And that this pass rush is loaded with potential and it showed how good it could be this week as the Irish had eight total sacks and helped uh, enforcing two picks and five total turnovers. I was really impressed in how they, they, they kind of controlled the entire game like you mentioned, that uh, running game really came alive. Tony Jones averaged 7.3 yards per carry. So once they get uh, Jafar Armstrong back in the mix, this offensive line continues to get better and better each week. Uh, so the Irish put uh, some of the other teams on their schedule. All right, Michigan. Um, on notice as we get uh, a little further into the, the meat of their schedule. Right. And it was it was kind of funny watching those D linemen on a couple of the scooping scores. They got one. But then watching your boy Tunga Vailoa just chug and chug and chug, and you're hoping and you're hoping, and <laughs> you completely saw the gas empty out of the tank, and he almost collapsed <laughs> inside the five yard line. And I, I think he was kind of graciously tackled, and you know, almost had his moment in the sun. But still, it was good to see the big man scoop it up and, and at least go forty yards. So, right, and it was unfortunate that he doesn't get uh, as as it's uh, so graciously called the fat guy <laughs> right. touchdown. Um, as uh, he as you as you as you said, he was huffing right. and puffing <laughs> towards the to get to that yep. goal line there, Chappie. But um, I'm gonna go to uh, one of my next points, and that's uh, Penn State has some you playmakers, think? huh? Like number one, <laughs> uh, Sean <laughs> Sean Clifford threw for almost 400 yards and three touchdowns. He also rushed for 54 yards and another TD. And that's not even the most impressive by a mile in this game in regards to playmakers for this Penn State team. Devin Ford, Journey Brown, Ricky Slade, KJ Hamler, the list goes on and on for this team. This is a quick strike offense in which almost anyone can take any touch to the house. And this defense continues to smother opponents. And Penn State looks like the number one contender with Wisconsin to challenge Ohio State in the Big Ten this year. What my biggest question is, and it's going to continue to be even going into this week, is we've seen this happen uh, in past years under James Franklin before, where they steamroll through their first four to six games, fall short in the meat of their Big Ten schedule. They have Purdue this week and should be another easy victory for them, but then they follow that with games at Iowa, home against Michigan, and at Michigan State. So by November, Penn State will be in the top five or could have a couple of losses. And the performance of these playmakers was going to go a long way towards determining the outcome of uh, those games that I mentioned, Chappie. Right, yeah. It was K.J. Hamler catching that pass and almost breaking both ankles and both kneecaps of Terrell Lewis, the corner Maryland, who just got put on his butt with uh, that stutter. And, and Hamler just took it to the house. It's almost as if uh, it was like a highlight of watching uh, uh, a Tecmo Bowl game from back in the day where he was just zigzagging all the way down the field making guys miss. Yeah. Right. And and you kind of saw that coming. Like I was waiting for the nearest defender. I'm like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? I'm like, oh, dude, you're on national TV. You're about to get embarrassed. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he's on his rear. Exactly. And, in the end zone. and you know, I, you and I were talking about this on Saturday is how did the University of Michigan, the greatest recruiting program in college football. How did they let him get to Happy Valley? He's from Pontiac, Michigan. I know that his measurables may not have been the best coming out of high school, but if you watch that dude run, how can you not put a, a scholarship offer on the table? And maybe Michigan did. I, I honestly didn't follow it too closely, but you would right. assume that looking at him now, Michigan's not maybe uh, pushing him further, but. I digress. So yeah, I, right. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't remember exactly what his his status was as far as stars or how highly touted he was, but definitely seems like someone that slipped through the cracks uh, from the folks in Ann Arbor for sure. Yeah, and I want to say, and and you know, Penn State fans and and recruiting gurus would probably be quick to jump all over me. I want to say he was only about a three star, maybe like a fringe service you look at, but. I, I don't remember him being one of those guys that they right. say, oh, this was a huge get for about Justin Shorter and Jahan Dotson, but not really K.J. Hamler until he burst on the scene last right. year against Ohio State yep. when he took that slant and outran those five-star DBs from Ohio State to the house, what, 90 yards or something like that. So, um, Speaking of speaking of playmakers, right. Oklahoma State. Now, this was yep. a game where we kind of 
we're wondering, this was a show-me game. Was it going to be the Cowboys who were going to show up at home after suffering a close loss on the road against Texas? Or was it going to be a game where Kansas State proved that they were for real? They came into the game undefeated, ranked 24th. You and I both picked the pokes in that one, but Chuba Hubbard, how about this guy? And anybody who's got him on their fantasy college football team is probably cashing in pretty good. 25 rushes, 296 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, the <laughs> dude was just going off. And this not, this was not a, uh, a mediocre Kansas State defense coming into the game. They were ranked as one of the top defenses, not just in the Big 12, but we're talking maybe top 40 in the country, and he put him to shame. Another guy that we love to watch on the offensive side of the ball, Tylon Smoochie-Wallace, eight receptions, 145 yards, didn't find the end zone, but really didn't need to. Right. Oklahoma State came out on top 26-13, and they really, it, it wasn't even close. I mean, Kansas State scored 10 points in the fourth quarter to close it to within a 13-point gap. So Oklahoma State really dominated in this one. Spencer Sanders, I think, came of age even more, 16-25, 153 yards, a touchdown. He did throw two picks, but you know, at this point, that's kind of still to be expected from a guy in his first year in game action in the Mike Gundy offense. But I think this Oklahoma State team, as you touched on in the preseason and as both of, I both of us talked about, is going to be an offense and can do some damage in that Big 12. Dip. Yeah, and Chuba Hubbard, if he keeps this pace, he's going to have over 2,200 yards before they get into potential championship season, the bowl game, right. um, or anything like that. He's been unbelievable this year, building upon that nice year that he had last year. Now, my question from this game is, uh, I've been um, uh, kind of high on Oklahoma State, but where's Kansas State go from this game? Now, they're 3-1. and one. They have Baylor this week, in which they're actually a favorite uh, by a couple points in the spread, um, but I could easily see the Bears taking that quote-unquote upset from Kansas State, and then they get into even more of the Big 12 schedule, um, curious to see what uh, Coach Kleiman uh, or, or Kleiman has his uh, Wildcats uh, coming into this game with, because this is a very dangerous Oklahoma State offense, in which three and zero can turn into three and two in no time, and the folks in Manhattan um, will have their their bubble burst uh, sooner than what they were hoping right. for. Yeah, so I, I'm curious to see the bounce back. You know, do they come back even if they play close in mm -hmm. a loss? How close is it? You know, I mean, I think we're really going to see the the measure of the character of this team. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give Kleiman the benefit of the doubt because of what he's done at North Dakota and and what we've seen him do so far at Kansas State. I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. But again, show me on the field, right. and it's easy to you know make those projections. But yeah, show us on the field. But I'm pulling for the Wildcats, yeah. especially the ones. In the <laughs> You know, another thought that, that jumped out to me was how about Alabama's receivers? Now, we knew that they had one of the deepest receiving cores in the country, probably the best in the country. But it seems like every week these guys are trading off stat killing, right? So you right. have Jerry Judy one week, Henry Ruggs the third another week. You have Devontae Smith this past weekend. One, not two, not three, not four, five touchdowns. This past weekend, five receiving touchdowns. Right. It was an Alabama record. But again, this was just another big performance by a wide receiver. And it wasn't like they were going against a scrub FCS team. It was an SEC opponent. Granted, it was Ole Miss. And, and their, you know, their defense is better than what they were last year. But um, to, to see Smith get behind the secondary and really just, I mean, it's almost like you can spot shadow any of those receivers and everything else in the field seems gray, and all you're seeing is this big dude, almost like uh, you know the the NBA Jam game where you have the cheat code <laughs> where you're playing with a dude who's like nine feet tall going against regular right. sized players. That's what receivers look like in some of these games, Bip. And so you know, hats off to Devontae Smith, and certainly makes Tua Tungavailoa look that much better when he's got these guys to throw to. Yeah, and this is all without mentioning that Jalen Waddle only has only yeah. has 197 yards receiving, no touchdowns yet after his outstanding true freshman season last year, um, and not <laughs> ooh get rid of his yeah, scholarship. Yeah, he and what Trevor a bum. Lawrence need to be kicked <laughs> off of uh, campus, um, and, and even <laughs> yeah. Najee Harris is um, 
total over 100 yards receiving and three touchdowns through the air. So uh, that passing game is is humming as as yeah. always the past few years with uh, Alabama. Now speaking of Trevor, do you smell any Steve Sarkeesian influence in that offense, Bip? I mean, all these passing yards and not the traditional Alabama grind it out and and beat you down like Wisconsin yeah, typically right. does. No, you got Steve Sarkeesian who's airing it out all over the place in his audition for his next head coaching mm-hmm. job next year. And speaking of Trevor Lawrence, Clemson got their scare out of the way, Chappie, it seems like. Now, almost every team has one of these kinds of games every year. This year, it happened to be that Clemson right. beats uh, North Carolina by only a point in which North Carolina could have tied the game up but went for two at the very end to go for the W instead of the uh, the tie and what would almost seemingly be the inevitable loss in overtime. So kudos to Mac Brown in, in going trying to step on the jugular there. But um, the important thing for Clemson is that they came out on top. Trevor Lawrence still isn't lighting the world on fire, but again, he will be fine towards the end of the season, especially as they get into championship and uh, playoff season should Clemson stay unscathed. And another thing coming out of this game, Isaiah Simmons, he collected another two and a half tackles for loss, one sack, 10 total tackles and a pass defended. He continues to be one of the top three defensive players in the country, in my opinion. Guys all over the field, unbelievable athlete playing linebacker and continues to be the leader of that defense for Clemson. And as you look at the the remaining schedule for Clemson, they got a bye, then they're hosting Florida State. So their next game after getting that scare against North Carolina, look out Willie Taggart, especially if you can't play a second half. Uh, they're at Louisville, <laughs> home against Boston College, home against... Wofford at NC State <laughs> who got beat down by West Virginia who we'll talk about in our previews here in yeah. just a minute and then I'm, I'm most intrigued to see them play Wake Forest on November 16th now I'm hoping that the Demon Deacons can go into that game at worst with one loss hopefully they're undefeated because that would be a, a really fun matchup to watch even if Clemson ends up beating the tar out of them uh, it would still be a, a good lead up and build up into that game especially for Dave Clawson and, and that Wake Forest program and then Agreed. they've got a buy and they play at South Carolina, who is starting to be a little bit of a sinking ship this season. Not because they're not a good team, but just because of that tough schedule. They're getting beaten up by injuries. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not worried about Clemson. I don't think anybody else should be either. And again, if you come to me and say, who else would you rather have at quarterback? Uh, if you take away Tua Tungavailoa, would I rather have anybody else at quarterback than Trevor Lawrence, despite his number of interceptions? Hell nope. no. I would still take number 16. And I think I'd still take him over Tua at this point, um, given what I've seen over the past year and a half. So mm-hmm. I think this might be just a slow start. Be careful what you wish for, uh, Clemson haters, because this could be a very dangerous stretch of six games with number 16 after a bye week and after kind of uh, collecting his mechanics and, and improving a little bit. So. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Let's get into week six, man. Yeah. We've got some pretty good matchups. Now, you know, more ranked opponents facing head-to-head this week than we've seen collectively in the last couple of weeks. Like I said at the beginning of the show, possibly slight shakedown Saturday. So we're going to start on Friday night, a little AAC action. Number 18, UCF Golden Knights. Still kind of stinging from their slip-away loss against Pitt a couple of weeks ago taking on the Cincinnati Bearcats out at Nippert Stadium. So still one of my favorite stadiums to pronounce. <laughs> the The line here, last I checked anyway, was UCF giving three and a half points to Cincy. So a, a very narrow margin of, of point total here. So I kind of look at it as, you know, UCF being the favorite. Why are they the favorite? Well, number one, their defense is playing really, really well this year. And you could chalk it up maybe to the fact that their level of competition has not been completely at the top of the, the the scheme that you know a lot of the UCF haters are pointing out. But you know, believe it or not, it's their defense that has is really been shining for them this year and allowing that offense to to you know have an even bigger luster. Mm-hmm. They're eighth in pass efficiency defense, twenty-fifth in defensive yards per play given up, forty-second in scoring defense. They're also very good in the turnover margin, whereas Cincinnati has not been. Since he's giving the ball away almost twice per game, and UCF is is doing a good job of taking the ball away. So that's going to lead into UCF's favor. I think Dylan Gabriel has done a really good job kind of putting to bed any questions of, you know, what's the quarterback situation going to be like? I, I we talked about it before. I just love seeing a left-handed quarterback throw the football. It just seems so pure and so... I don't know, something beautiful about that. 
Obviously, they have an explosive offense. They force you to play catch me if you can, and if you get down two scores, they've got you, and that's really UCF football right there. Cincinnati, their chance to win this game, they've got to get to the quarterback. They're 26th in the NCAA in sacks, which is obviously something good to see, but it's going to be difficult to get to Dylan Gabriel, one, because he's out of the shotgun, two, because it's a catch-set-throw type offense, and they've got a lot of speed, not just at receiver, but more so in the backfield. Guys like Adrian Killens, Greg McRae, even Otis Anderson, all three guys are averaging nearly seven yards a carry or better. Um, Cincinnati, you know, the other thing that they might have going for them is that experience at quarterback in Desmond Ritter. He's used to playing in front of a, you know, kind of a, a bigger situation. He went down to the bounce house in Orlando last year. They got beat up soundly for all intents and purposes, but you know, if he can come back and, and start to kind of command the ship a little bit better, this is a quietly good three and one Cincinnati team, but this is their opportunity to show how good they are against the UCF program that again is really looking to make up some lost movement when they slipped in the polls. And you know, playing in front of a rocking crowd at Nippert Stadium is certainly going to be a, a help to Cincinnati. But if Cincy shuts down the pass and uh, UCF is 27th best in rushing offense, so it's not as though they're one-dimensional. We talked about those guys like Killens and McRae. And how about Bentavious Thompson as well? Really their third back and has kind of forced Otis Anderson to be that slash running back and wide receiver, <laughs> running him on end arounds and, and kind of getting the jet sweeps going. So I think what it comes down to is UCF is used to being here. Cincy is not there just yet. I like this game to be pretty close to the first, second, and part of the third, but I see UCF pulling away at the end. Give me the Knights to cover and win 41-24, a 17-point victory over the Bearcats on Friday night, Bip. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaning the same way. Um, Dylan Gabriel has has looked good as of late and just got off of a mud stomping of UConn, but then again, who hasn't? What, yeah, right. I, what really impressed me with that offense, uh, offense are the skill players that you mentioned, McCray, Killens, Gabriel Davis. They represent one of the most dynamic set of skill position players in the country, and Davis is on pace for some unbelievable numbers. He's averaging 20 yards per catch, eight touchdowns already receiving. Um, so, uh, so keep an eye out for him to have a big game again after since he's 42, nothing lost to Ohio state, they've kind of rolled, uh, each of their opponents that they played since then. And yeah. they'll look to use this game to springboard them back into the top 25, that backfield duo that they have of Michael Warren and Tavian Thomas has played pretty well. And, um, that defense has, uh, worn down some of their opponents Alec Pierce, someone to look an eye, uh, to keep an eye out for, uh, receiver for Cincinnati. He's averaging 19.8 yards per catch. Um, I like both of these offenses as they're they're kind of powerful, but I like UCF's despite their sometimes shaky quarterback play a little bit better. Yeah. Since he plays sound defense, but UCF really gets after their opponents defensively. The yeah. Knights have nine guys with at least two tackles for loss, and that secondary really affects the passing game. Neville Clark, Richie Grant, and Aaron Robinson have combined for 18 passes defended already, and they've combined to pick, to pick off two passes. I think this UCF defense is great at using that defense to swing or build the momentum in the game to get the ball back to that offense. And we know that that's a quick hit scoring kind of offense that can turn the momentum or build upon the momentum uh, very quickly in the game. I think since he keeps this game as close as any other team in the conference mm -hmm. uh, against UCF, but I think UCF is too much in this one. I like the Knights 34, 23 easily covering that spread. Yeah. And, and while we're on the topic of the AAC, don't sleep on the temple owls. They, they are kind of starting to show in that conference mm -hmm. that they're someone to reckon with. In, in addition to everybody's darling right now, SMU, who's starting off five and zero. again, they're still a team that's got to show me a little bit of something. They really haven't played anybody yet, but they, the teams that they have played, they've won in impressive fashion. They, they put a good old uh, stomping on U, USF at USF in a game that may have decided Charlie Strong's fate, depending on how the rest of the season goes. Bit, but yeah, you and I both like Anthony Russo, quarterback from Temple, and yes, while sir. he's been a little shaky in regards to turnovers, he's a gamer and yeah. someone that I love to have uh, with the ball in his hands uh, when it comes down to it uh, in crunch time. Yep, and and Isaiah Wright as well. I think he's going to be one of those guys who's going to be a name in the NFL for special teams and being that kind of scat type receiver who can just make plays happen in open space. I really like watching that dude too. 
Yeah, so, and, and again to clarify, the the non last chance you Isaiah Wright, the exactly, uh, yeah, that keeps his head clean. Yeah, um, the guy, the guy who so. is um, in front of bars and not behind them. So, <laughs> yeah. So going into uh, my first game, Chappie, I have the Auburn Tigers taking on the Florida Gators in Gainesville, mm-hmm. and Auburn comes into this one as a three point favorite. Um, and I think Auburn is is a little underrated in my opinion. Uh, and the reason why, why I say that is they beat Oregon in the opener with a freshman quarterback and have never really been in jeopardy of a loss since that game. They handled Texas A&M and the Aggies, uh, or I'm sorry, and the Aggies made that one close only at the very end of the game. Right. They throttled Mississippi State, and they've been one of the best teams in the country at running the ball and at stopping the run. Two of the biggest indicators of how good your football team is, but they still seem to be on the outside looking in um, when it comes to the uh, talking about the you know the the elite teams in the country right now, right. Tretavius Whitlow keeps getting better and better, and Bo Nix was incredibly efficient against the Bulldogs last week. Seth Williams has emerged as a true threat at wide receiver and building upon his impressive freshman season from last year. And offensively, we know the Tigers live and die along that defensive line, which might be the best in the country. That secondary though ranks sec- 72nd in passing yards allowed per game. But a lot of those have occurred in the second half when they've been tr- protecting a decent lead. My biggest question with the secondary is when they'll begin to start affecting the balls in the air as they only have one pick and not a whole lot of uh, passes defended. They will be tested by this very talented group of receivers that Florida possesses mm-hmm. and a quarterback in Kyle Trask that has seemed to have getting, gotten better each week. On the other side, the Gators look like they have themselves as I mentioned, a pretty good quarterback. Uh, granted, he's played against Kentucky, Tennessee, and Towson. Um, Tennessee actually ranks 28th in the country in passing D, and Kyle Trask has completed 77% of his passes thus far with a 5-2 to two touchdown to interception ratio. His top four receivers are as good as any top four receivers in the country, and Kyle Pitts has emerged as a dangerous weapon at tight yeah. end. The Gators do need to lean on their passing game, uh, however, as they haven't been able to get much of a ground game going no. into this year. LaMichael P. Ryan's disappointed me. He's averaging only 3.7 yards per carry. Uh, but defensively is where Florida, I think, is it, that's going to keep them in this game uh, mostly. The um, They've been really disruptive this year. Jonathan Greener, Jeremiah Moon, Jabari Zuniga have combined for 15 tackles for loss and nine sacks, and they really get after uh, opposing quarterbacks and into disrupt in the backfield. Something to look out for. Auburn's only forced five turnovers compared to Florida, who's forced 13 this year. So how do turnovers play a role in this game, especially in such a hostile environment as the Swamp? This Gator defense has two shutouts, and they've allowed half as many points as Auburn thus far. However, the Tigers have had the tougher schedule. So to me, this one comes down to quarterback play. I think whichever quarterback can play more fundamentally sound than the other will be the quarterback that comes out on top. I like the veteran Trask, even though he doesn't have a ton of playing experience, over Bo Nix, especially when considering how often this Gator defense can get into the backfield and cause havoc plays. I like the Gators to death roll this one 24-20 with a slight upset over the visiting Auburn Tigers, Jack. Very interesting. Yep. So, Auburn, my my notes here. What do they got to do to win this game? Even though they're a three-point favorite, get to the quarterback. You've got to disrupt Kyle Trask. Like you said, 77% completion means that he's seeing the field really well. He's locking in on his reads. And I don't mean locking in as he's seeing one guy, meaning he's seeing and understanding where he's got to get the football to. And it probably is because he hasn't mm-hmm. really faced too much pressure in his face. That's going to change against Auburn. Florida's had trouble protecting the quarterback. Against Towson, an FCS team, they gave up, I think, three sacks. And that was in the first half against Towson. So that's not good numbers against a team like that. So the, the offensive predictions has got to be a little bit better. But nonetheless, it doesn't seem like it's been affecting Trask too much. He's got five touchdowns, and he's, and he's hitting those. Uh, also for Auburn, you got to use your backs in offensive line to wear down that Florida front and then be just good enough in the passing game, make it to where, like you've done so mm-hmm. far, things have been easy and things have been manageable for Bo Nix. He's definitely a, a talent. He's a good athlete, but you don't want to put the entire game on his shoulders like you alluded to. I think if it gets to that situation where Bo Nix has to win the game, I think I'm going to favor the Gators D over the inexperienced number 10 for Auburn. Now for Florida... Trask has to show the nation that he is a number one quarterback. He's looked good so far, 
but we'll have to do this week without much help from that run game. They're 111th in rushing yards per game. Like you mentioned, uh, P. Ryan's been a, a, a disappointment. Damian Pierce hasn't provided too much more on top of that. They're going to have to make it, you know, so they're, they're 111th against or running the football. Auburn's 17th best in stopping the run. So this is going to be a situation where, again, it's going to come down to Trask. And he's got to use those receivers. I, I like their size, and they've got similar athleticism compared to Auburn's defensive backs. Now, Auburn's got some pretty good athletes in the secondary, but like you said, they haven't really been putting up earth-shattering lockdown numbers, and, and Florida's offensive group has. I really like what I've seen from Pitts re recently. I saw a list of potential Mackey Award candidates for nation's top tight end, and Pitts' name was left off. I think that's four or five weeks coming up, especially going against the competition that he's going to be seeing. I think that Florida and, and their fans need to welcome this right. freshman quarterback to the swamp in the right way. So Auburn's been good so far, and, and I agree with you that they might be a little bit under the radar. I think now the nation knows about them, and that could be a little bit to their detriment. I think that we're going to see a little bit of exhaustion and attrition from that tough schedule that they played. Uh, Florida is gaining confidence once again and have a good coaching staff. I mean, both of them do, but I'm going to side a slight edge to Dan Mullen and Todd Grantham on the defensive side for Florida over Gus Malzahn and Kevin Steele, the defensive coordinator for the Tigers. I think Auburn cools down a bit here, and Florida's passing game ends up being the difference. I also like your four-point difference with the Gators coming out on top. I say 27-23 Florida in this one. So we'll switch back to and go okay. north again to Big Ten country. We've got two Big Ten games I want to look at. First one. Out in Ann Arbor, A-squared, the number 19-ranked Michigan Wolverines, who many have written off after a poor performance two weeks ago against Wisconsin and then, well, beating Rutgers like everybody else and the poor sisters have done. Um, taking on the 14th-ranked Iowa Hawkeyes. <laughs> now, this Iowa team is a team that this week has to show me that they are worthy of being mentioned as the third or fourth best team in the Big Ten, and certainly – going against Michigan, who others would consider as the third or fourth best team in the Big Ten. This is going to be that battle for number three behind Ohio State and Wisconsin thus far in the season. So starting off with Michigan, who I, you know, they're they're a five and a half point favorite, which I was a little bit surprised at that the line was that wide. I thought it would be a little bit closer. And honestly, I thought that Iowa might have a slight one point or point and a half edge going into this game. Michigan's got to get that passing game going. They need Shea Patterson to be the Patterson that they thought that they got when they fought the NCAA and got him eligible when he transferred over from Ole Miss a season ago. This is going to be their best chance to try and beat that secondary. Iowa has had some big plays given up in the secondary. I know that they're thin back there and they're maturing, but the problem for Michigan is there really hasn't been a true wide receiver threat that's emerged. Ronnie Bell has been their top receiver. Donovan Peoples-Jones is still coming back from a slight injury. Nico Collins has shown flashes, but it's been Ronnie Bell that's been the one that's been making the plays. And I think that you know he still is not that home run threat that Michigan fans are hoping to see on the outside. The run game has been a little bit stagnant. I mean, you look at Michigan's numbers offensively, 70, uh, or I'm sorry, 83rd in rush offense in terms of rushing yards per game. That is just not a Michigan team. And I think a big part of that is uh, a limited and somewhat suspect offensive line, which looked like one of the Big Ten's better units coming into the season. Now, I know that they've had an injury or two uh, up front, but nonetheless, again, you go back to the point I made earlier, Michigan, it's recruiting, it's this is you know a program that's supposed to be a blue blood. They're not playing like it right now. Um, they had a nice-looking win against Rutgers, but Iowa is maybe the third-best team in this conference. So let's look at the Hawkeyes. What do they need to do? They have to get that run game continuing to go. Michigan is not getting good play out of their D-line just yet, and Iowa has actually been running the ball better than I expected. Coming into this game, the Hawkeyes are the ninth-best rushing team in terms of rush yards per game, and they're getting it from a multiple group of, of players headed by Torin Young, who I think is their most talented running back, but Makai Sargent is a good number two option and, and kind of spells him in that backfield. And what that's doing is that's setting up a very effective play action game with Nate Stanley, their senior quarterback who's in his third year as the starter in Iowa City. And he's hitting those underrated receivers, guys like Amir Smith-Barset, Brandon Smith, and then Oliver Martin recently, the Michigan transfer has been stepping up, Nico Reganey, 
And, you know, it hasn't been their tight ends this year. It's been more play from the outside guys, which is nice to see if you're a Hawkeye fan. I think also the key for Iowa is going to be the defense against Michigan's run game. They're ninth best at stopping the run against Michigan being 83rd in running the ball. So if Iowa can continue to shut down that Michigan run game, and trust me, Bip, they're going to be ready for that boot play, which Rutgers unfathomably couldn't stop the seven or eight times that they ran it against the Scarlet Knights last week. And I was a little (laughs) bit surprised, recently let go Chris Ash, who I was kind of sorry to see. I I really do like the guy as a coach and, and as a person, but they just, they had no game plan to stop that bootleg play. And it was surprising to me because their rush game only had, I think, like 140-some yards running the ball. So it wasn't like they were running it down Rutgers' throats. But nonetheless, uh, Patterson and even when Joe Milton got in the game in garbage time, he was giving fits to that outside play. So I was not going to be fooled by that. What it comes down to for me, I've learned this lesson. When in doubt, choose Iowa. They, when I picked against them in close games, they burned me. When I picked them in close games, like many games last year, when I wasn't sure either way, I don't have a clear-cut idea of who's going to win this game. So I'm going to go with the Hawkeyes, and I think they're going to be a touchdown favorite. So I think that they will not only beat the five-and-a-half-point spread, but I think that they're a seven-point better team than Michigan. Give me Iowa 28-21 in the big house and continuing to make the faces longer on Wolverine fans. Yep, and I... Going back to the spread in this game, I think it's I think Michigan started off as a seven point favorite to start things off, and now it's down. To, I don't get that. Yeah, I don't understand it either. Um, I think that, uh, like you mentioned, this is a statement game for each team. Iowa to figure out if they're amongst the top four in the Big Ten on either side of the conference. Um, yeah, on either side of the conference, Michigan to make sure that they're still in the potential playoff hunt and Big Ten race. Um, so, um, going into this game, it's not one that I would touch because like I'm, like you mentioned, um, you know, Michigan hasn't looked great so far, but I kind of have some questions about Iowa as well, yeah. just because they haven't had the greatest of competition outside of Iowa state, but that game was even one of those to where I wouldn't look overly impressive. It just seemed like Iowa state looks similar to how they did against, uh, Baylor in the first half. Um, right. so Going into this one, we know that Iowa going to Iowa. They got solid quarterback play. They limit mistakes. They give great running back production. Um, and all three of their top backs have recorded at least 200 yards rushing and averaged at least five and a half yards per carry. The defense has done a great job of limiting points. However, outside of Iowa State, as I mentioned, they haven't faced a very powerful offense. So we'll see if this um, this Michigan offense, which also hasn't put up a ton of points themselves, but has a lot of talent, we'll see. Uh, who wins between those two, the Iowa defense or the Michigan offense. What can you, what continues to surprise me this year so far is how Iowa hasn't recorded a ton of turnovers or tackles for loss. Um, they, they've That's been you off pretty bit, sound tackling. They, they're 105th in the nation in sacks. I mean, exactly. uh, looking at their stat line right now, there's not one player on this defense that has more than yeah. one sack. They've got five. Five total sacks. I mean, you're talking about a guy like A.J. Epinesa, and I know that you know you and I talked about that was maybe going to be a concern coming into this year, and mm-hmm. Iowa slaps someone in particular on another podcast was trying to put in our that Iowa's defensive line was going to be mm-hmm. a, a great juggernaut once again and just going to be light up offensively. We haven't <laughs> seen it yet this year. Now, I could be eating my words, especially in a couple of weeks when they travel to Evanston, but, um, you know, so far, we're just not seeing that great D-line play from right. Iowa. Right, and and when you have a team that does a pretty good job at at limiting points but doesn't show the tackles for loss, the sacks, or the turnovers, you have to wonder if those points will start to gradually increase week after week if they don't start producing those. So that'll be yeah. one thing that I look at uh, in this game. But conversely, Michigan has done nothing but turn the ball the ball over this year, and they have really struggled against the fundamentally sound defenses like Army and Wisconsin. So this Hawkeye defense could provide more of the same trouble for the Wolverines uh, if they don't figure stuff out offensively. I can't count on Michigan until I see them play an opponent better than Rutgers, uh, like Michigan has the ability to play them. I'm scratching my head as to why Michigan is a favorite going into this game. So I'm going to go with the Hawkeyes to continue playing their sound football against the Wolverines and win this one 27-21 and uh, take one from the Wolverines in Ann Arbor, Chappie. 
Yep. So give us give us your next game, Bep. Where are we going to? Well, we're going to travel to West Virginia, in which the Texas uh, Longhorns come into town, and they're only an eleven point favorite. So Texas <laughs> enters this game having come off a bye, and is the week before they take on Oklahoma. Now West Virginia's three and one entering this game and is playing well under new coach Neil Brown. So the Mountaineers are at home in this one. So is this a trap game for the Longhorns? No. Um, I think taking a deeper dive into into this game, uh, West Virginia, they've beaten James Madison only by seven points, mind you. An NC State team that's lost as much as anyone in the country from last year going into this year and similarly hasn't beaten any opponents and uh, only uh, West Virginia <clears throat> I'm sorry, they haven't beaten any good opponents and uh, outside of West Virginia and also only beat Kansas by five. So their lone loss this season was an ass-kicking by Missouri, 38-7. to And for those of you unsure at home, Texas is a little more Missouri than West Virginia's other three opponents. So yeah, right. um, Austin Kendall has been very pedestrian this year, averaging only six yards per attempt while only having a 6-3 to touchdown-to-interception ratio. The West Virginia running backs haven't fared any better, as Kennedy McCoy is averaging only 3.1 yards per carry, and Martel Petaway is even worse with 2.6 yards per carry. They yeah. need to find a way to get George Campbell more involved in this offense, as he's only got four catches on the year, but he's averaging 25 yards per catch and has scored three times. So how he's not being targeted more frequently, I'm not sure. Defensively, Dante and Darius Stills have been disruptive with 11.5 combined tackles for loss and seven combined sacks, while Keith Washington has led the secondary with two picks and three passes defended. The Mountaineers will be without Josh Stills for the rest of the season uh, on the offensive line, but they do get Bandarius Cowan back for, from a game four, or a four game suspension and could provide a boost to that defense. For the Longhorns, they'll probably try to take advantage of a West Virginia run defense that ranks 91st in the country. Keontae Ingram has looked good in each game not involving LSU so far this year, so I think we see more of the same this week, and I also think Ellinger gets plenty of yards on the ground in this one, although he's nursing some um, some tender ribs, so we'll see how much they do let him uh, carry the ball in this game. West Virginia, Who in Texas isn't nursing some ribs, though, Bip? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, and that actually sounds pretty good right now. Yes, sir. Um, West Virginia is in the 40s for pass defense, but they haven't faced a team that can sling it quite like Texas, who ranks 11th in the country in passing offense. And Devin DuVernay is quickly becoming one of the best two or three uh, receivers in the Big 12. Uh, I really enjoy watching him play. Mm -hmm. Smaller statue guy, but he really plays much bigger than what his height and his size is. And Brennan Eagles is averaging only 20, is averaging over 27 yards per catch on 10 catches. So the Longhorns also get uh, Colin Jack, uh, Johnson back for this one, potentially. So that uh, group of receivers could really outmatch this group of defensive backs for West Virginia. This Texas defense has been the weak spot so far this year, and that secondary has been hit hard by injuries. If West Virginia has a chance in this one, it's going to be uh, it'll be have to be in a shootout in which Austin Kendall plays his best game of the season. I don't see that happening. Texas covers easily and gets some style points in this victory before the Red River rivalry next week. I like Texas 38, West Virginia 13. Okay, yeah, I was going to point that out, and I, I was waiting for you to say it. This is the game before the Red River rivalry. You talked about some of those injuries. Texas, you know, yeah, when I look at the stats, I kind of wondered, is, is 11 and a half a big enough line here? But then nope. I started to think that, well, I don't know, Bip, because this might be a game that Texas kind of sleepwalks through or plays close to the vest and just says, we want to stay out of our own way and get ready for the Sooners because I can promise you that's going to be their bowl game. If they don't get past OU, I don't care if they come back and beat them in the Big 12 championship with one loss to a good LSU team already. They have to beat Oklahoma next week, and they have to beat them again in the Big 12 championship. So, for Texas, I have they got to get physical and stay physical. West Virginia is not a physical team, and James Madison proved that. Missouri proved that. NC State proved that. I mean, West Virginia really did not grunt out any victory yet. They've kind of been a finesse type team, and and has, have used their athletes. And I have here that they're probably one of the most vanilla three and one teams in the country. So for West mm -hmm. Virginia, use your athletes and your ingenuity to try and outrun 
UT's grit and strength. But like I said, Texas, get physical, stay physical, and then let Ellinger sling it out. You're a third, you're the 11th ranked pass efficiency offense for a reason. Abuse wide or West Virginia's 75th rated pass defense. Work all areas of the field. Get the ball to guys like Duvernay, who you liked, um, Jake Smith, Roshan Johnson out of the backfield, who I really like him as a running back now. And can we please put to Curb Street that he used to be a quarterback and that he's a converted quarterback. It seems like every Texas game I've watched this year, when number two gets the ball, Herb Street chimes in, you know, he's a converted quarterback. It's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I've heard you. I've watched the game. And in the last right. four plays, you've said it three times. So, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, use him and then have Keontae Ingram and some of those other bigger backs put the nails in the coffin. I like Texas to cover the 11 and a half here, but Barely. I like Texas 34-22 over West Virginia. And, you know, the game I don't think is going to really be that close. But when you look at the final line, I think it's going to make some people in Vegas sweat a little bit and some better sweat a little bit. I do like Texas here. But again, I see this as a potential sleepwalk game and, and kind of just making sure that you've got everybody ready for Oklahoma next week. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, Chappie, why don't you take us to uh, your last game uh, on your slate here? Who you got up next? Uh, staying in the Big Ten, uh, my as my last game was, uh, top 25 ranking literally between number four Ohio State, which some people feel should be number one in the country, against Michigan State, who's ranked 25th, and actually dropped a spot after a nine-point backdoor uh, you know, cover blow against Indiana, where they won 40 to 31. So Ohio State, what do they got to do? Continue to play Ohio State football. So starting on defense, I think that that's the biggest story so far this year. I mean, Ohio State under Ryan Day and the athletes that they get on offense, they're always going to be good, especially in their first four games. We saw it last year. But, you know, they're going to, they greatly outmatch Michigan State's offense, and they're going to have to continue to show that and not play down to MSU's offensive level. And MSU has been a little bit better offensively speaking. Brian Lewerke is, is right now playing as the maybe third best quarterback in the Big Ten, arguably maybe the second or the fourth, depending on who you talk to. But they still really don't have a running game outside of Elijah Collins. I was a little bit surprised to see that he was the fourth highest running back in terms of yardage in the Big Ten, but he's only averaging 75 a game, which is not going to knock the doors off of anybody. Their Ohio State's defense is top six in yards per play given up, scoring defense, passing efficiency defense, and they're 13th in rush defense. And Michigan State is nowhere near any of those numbers on the offensive side of the ball. Ohio State's going to have to continue to block, run, catch and run, play fast, come back and do it again. It's almost not fair for Ohio State's offense going against any defense. but they're going against a Michigan State defense, and this is a group that Ohio State has not faced the likes of this type of defense anywhere near where MSU is at just yet. But in saying that, Indiana, who only scored 10 points on the Buckeyes, put up 31 on this MSU defense last week in East Lansing. The Spartans have to come to Columbus this time, which is always a difficult place to play in Big Ten play, especially this early in the season. So that's going to be something to watch. For Michigan State, you got to sack the quarterback. They're 22nd nationally in sacks, led by our guy Kenny Willekes and the Panasuk brothers, and even Raekwon Williams is getting into the backfield more frequently than he did last year. Joe Bacci is really the leader and the, and the, uh, the glue that holds that defense together. Justin Fields could get rattled if, they find, if MSU finds their way to him early because the offensive line for the Buckeyes is only 80th in sack protection. So even though Fields hasn't really been brought down too much this year he has been he's been getting pressured a little bit because that offensive line is more of a uh run blocking offense than they are a pass protection offense but that's where the Buckeyes may try to get their backs and their receivers wide and use some misdirection and try and use MSU's strength inside as a as a liability against them and and we know that if Ohio State can get to green they're very very dangerous now, some people are saying, well, this could be maybe a, a look-ahead game. This could be a game that catches the Buckeyes. But go back to last year. This is a team that's on a mission, and they're out to prove that there will not. There will not be another Purdue. Plus, the game is in Columbus. So everything looks to be in favor of the Buckeyes here. They're a 20.5-point favorite over Michigan State. So some may look at that number and say, well, I'm going to take the points there because Michigan State's defense seems to be a lot better than giving up a 21-point spread. 
but still, I like the Buckeyes to win it 34 15. Um, uh, give me Michigan State to cover the 20 and a half, but barely. So, Buckeyes squeak out a, a 19 point victory. I don't think they score as much, but I think the game is, is a lot wider of a margin than that 34 15 score that I predict. That- sure. Well, yeah. Uh, so, from this past Saturday, ass kicking doesn't begin to describe that Nebraska Ohio <laughs> State game. 38 oh, nothing <laughs> by the end of the first half. And that Husker offense and defense had zero answers for the Buckeyes. Right. And Chappie, you and I talked about this. What a terrible pick for game day to go to that, uh, to, to be on <sighs> I felt bad for, for Husker game. fans, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Adrian Martinez was limited to 47 passing yards, and each Buckeye that carried the ball averaged at least six yards per carry. I don't think the Buckeyes will come close to being as efficient offensively against this MSU defense as they were against Nebraska, but they totaled 17 tackles for loss against the Huskers. That is a stat that I think could rear its head against Sparty. Ohio State is averaging 10.4 tackles for loss per game. Michigan State's only allowing 4.2 tackles for loss per game, but this Ohio State defense is a completely different animal. Brian Lewerke has thrown six touchdowns and zero interceptions in his last two games, but completed only 53% of his passes in doing so. He was uh, uh, also only sacked twice in those two games combined. So I think that more pressure gets to him uh, much more frequently against Ohio State. And I think we see him make more mistakes. And if he doesn't improve his completion percentage and start uh, moving the ball a little more down the field, um, then that's going to spell trouble for this Michigan State offense. Michigan State limits the Buckeyes to their lowest point total of the season, I think, this year. But there's no way, uh, or and there's no way that they move, lose by more than 20 points in this game. Because remember, last year they lost 26 to six, but that was a game in which Brian Lewerke and Rocky Lombardi both tried to be uh, outdo each other as the worst quarterback performance in the Big Ten last year, as they both completed under 40 percent of their passes. And Michigan State's running backs combined for five yards against Ohio State last year. I think they get better offensive production this year. I think that defense is better this year than it was last year. But Ohio State still wins this game comfortably. Give me the points in a Buckeye victory. Ohio State 37, Michigan State 20. Um, But like you said, I think this game is not going to be as close as that 17 points that I predict. And Ohio State walks through this one against uh, Michigan State. Very good. You want to take us out to Eugene and talk about your Oregon Ducks and our final pick of the week, Bip? Yes, sir. So um, Cal comes into this game and they're 17 and a half point underdogs at uh, Oregon coming fresh off a loss that um, almost knocked them out of the top 25 um, or may have. I guess it did. Yep. So they they come in unranked. Yep. Um, So Cal is uh, coming off that that only loss of their season to a good Arizona state team. And Cal had been playing with fire all season long with their close wins and finally got burned more discouraging for the golden bears. is The fact that Chase, uh, quarterback chase Garbers was lost in the game with a shoulder injury and should be out for a while. And even worse is Devin monster looked completely lost and this Cal offense could be even worse than it was before. Garbers was no world beater, but he moved the Cal offense when it needed to. Monster finished the game 5 of 14 for only 23 yards and a pick. Yikes. So this Cal defense is very good, but it's going to be really tough for them to overcome that loss. That uh, Unless Monster makes leaps and bounds improvement from the uh, Arizona State game, they could struggle even more to score some points in this game. The Bears will need to slow down this Oregon offense by giving them a steady diet of Christopher Brown and Marcel Dancy on the ground and hope to play mistake-free football. Defensively, they have the secondary to stop this Oregon passing attack, but Oregon's trio of running backs should be effective in this game. Cal ranks only 68th in the country in stopping the run, but Evan Weaver and Kwani Dang continue to tackle anything in their way. Evan Weaver leads the country in tackles by 19 total tackles. He's 19 tackles ahead of second place, and Dang is just outside the top 20. So those two should be busy in this one, should Oregon continue to pound the the ball with their running game. For Oregon, surprisingly, their defense has been more impressive than their offense so far this year, as they rank seventh in the country in defensive efficiency. Javon Holland and Thomas Graham have been the playmakers in the secondary that many thought that they would be. They rank 7th in points per game defensively and 26th in rushing yards per game. This could spell bad news for Cal, given their offensive woes, especially without Garbers. 
on offense, we know about Justin Herbert. And for the Duck fans, they might be hoping this game doesn't come down to the fourth quarter with him at the helm. Because Chappie, you and I have said multiple times how we don't trust him necessarily with the ball in his hands if it comes down to it in the last two minutes. But his receivers have shown up this year. Jacob Breland has five touchdown catches and nine different Ducks have caught a touchdown pass already this year, which is an impressive stat. And they should be getting Micah Pittman and Juwan Johnson back in the mix as well as both have missed the first four games so far this year due to various injuries. So similar to the Michigan State game, I don't like any spread involving Cal losing by more than two touchdowns. That said, I don't see any way the Bears take this game on the road. I think the Ducks win is easily, but barely miss the cover in this one. I like Oregon 27-10. Interesting. I, I, I talked about this last week, and I said, okay, Cal against Arizona State is kind of similar to Maryland after their first two games. Very impressive, but it was a show-me game. And Cal showed me that they could play good. They could play mm-hmm. well, but to lose at home to an Arizona State team the way that they did, and I know that losing Garbers was a big hit, especially when you saw what Modster Mash came in and, and didn't. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I I actually like Oregon a lot bigger in this one. So, you know, what does Oregon have to do? Pressure Modster and continue to force turnovers in the passing game. Like we touched on, losing Garbers is is a really big loss for Cal. I think a lot bigger than most fans would realize and now they have to go into a noisy Autzen stadium and play an Oregon team with a chip on their shoulder hearing from many people like me who say that Washington has the best chance to be the Pac-12's representative in the college football playoff which means that I am still gonna put my money on the Huskies beating the the Ducks when they when they match up I don't know if it's next Mm. week or a couple weeks from now but you know I think that that's going to give Oregon players and their coaching staff every reason that they can to just bury this Cal team into the ground as, as best they can. So it's a big point differential. 15.5-point favorites are the Ducks. And I think you saw it as, as big as, what, 17, Bip? 17 and a half, okay, uh, 17 and a half. as of yesterday, I think. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, big you know they've got playmakers on offense, and Arizona State made the Cal defense look a little bit vulnerable and I think the Oregon offense, and I really think it's not even up for debate, is so much better, so much more dangerous than Arizona State's young offensive group. So, Cal, what do they have to do? If they can force a lot of turnovers, and they are very good at taking the ball away, especially against the pass, that's going to help keep them in the game and give them a shot. But the problem is that Oregon's been so good at protecting their offense and allowing their offense to score, they're not giving the ball away very much. In fact, in the turnover margin, Oregon ranks – um, sixth in turnover margin this year, and it's really because they're getting a lot of takeaways and really not turning the ball over very much. That defensive secondary is has been playing really lights out. I love what Thomas Graham, is, Graham has been doing, um, and, and they're getting to the quarterback. They, they're just playing really good defense. In fact, I would put them up there with Cal. I think Cal plays maybe a more shutdown type of defense, but in terms of defensive playmaking ability, mm-hmm. Oregon certainly outshines the Bears. I think this is also going to be a, quote, distraction for Justin Wilcox, who's coming back and playing against his alma mater. I think that anytime you get a coach that's going back there and trying to show his you know, his family, his friends, and, and, and the people who knew him when he was a duck, try and show them proud and, and trying to win one up, I think that that just gives you a little bit of a distraction. And I know that people will say, well, no, he's a professional and if that was really that much of a psychological edge, you wouldn't get into coaching. But I beg to differ because I've been in that position and I've talked to guys who've been in that position and it does play a little bit of a, uh, you know, a mind game with you. So I think given that and given Oregon's chip on their shoulder, I like the ducks winning here, big 35, 13 over Cal uh, Hmm. and, and and beating that spread. So yeah, give me the duck big in this one. So uh, you got anything else for us, Bip, or is that pretty much close out week six? That pretty much closes us out, Chappie. Um, real quick, uh, got a couple. Just uh, oh, forgot our teams, man. How how could I how could I go without talking about the Irish Wildcats? <laughs> That's right. Well, why don't you why don't you talk about your Wildcats first, Chappie? All right. Well, uh, you all can read about what I think about the Northwestern and Nebraska game on Wildcat Report coming out in a couple of days. But I'm going to give you a little teaser here on a bowl full of chips. So. 
this game, these two teams are very in very similar situations. It's a must-win team or must-win game for both Nebraska and Northwestern because a loss is going to put each fan base and each coach in a proverbial hot water. I'm not going to say the hot seat, but Nebraska loses, they fall to three and three, and that means that Scott Frost is now seven and eleven in his first fifteen game or first uh, eighteen games in Lincoln. Northwestern loses, and it'll be a one and four start for Pat Fitzgerald, his worst start ever in his first five games in his fourteen season uh, as fourteenth season as head coach for the Wildcats. The game's in Lincoln, but this is a game where you know, kind of throw out the stats because they're very similar on both sides. I don't see I don't I trust Fitzgerald and his program and his where he's built this this program to come out of this one a winner more so than I trust Scott Frost at this point. I still have not been convinced that they are the offensive team that he showed when he was coaching at UCF and when he was the OC at Oregon. Adrian Martinez has been in a slump this year, 7 to 5 touchdown to interception ratio. In fact, I mean, you look at that seven passing touchdowns in five games for Nebraska when this is a Scott Frost offense coming in, and in some games they would throw seven touchdowns in one game. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit baffled at that. Northwestern's defense is really playing well, and they're getting better by the week. They played tough against Wisconsin last week, and really you look at the the difference in the game was nine points, and 12 of those points came off of Wisconsin defensive turnovers. So if Northwestern can get any sort of a pulse on offense, and I think it's going to have to come from their running game with Drake Anderson, and if Isaiah Bowser is at least healthy enough to rip off a couple of runs, they're going to be without Bennett Skoranek, their leading receiver. But if Hunter Johnson or I even have alluded to the idea of maybe Aiden Smith gets the start at quarterback because, number one, Johnson was knocked out last week. Is he fully healthy? But number two, I kind of saw a little bit more life and a little bit more spunk with with Smith in there at quarterback. So maybe this is the game to at least give him some reps and see where the offense goes. And if not, now Hunter Johnson can come in and maybe play that hero and, and clear his mind a little bit, which Fitzgerald has been known to do by – putting his number one quarterback on the bench, not necessarily maybe to start a game, but at some point in the game, not because of poor performance, but just to allow him to see the game a little bit better and then bring him back in and kind of that bullpen role. So I'm going to take the the Wildcats in this one. They are seven-point underdogs. I like them to win by two, 23-21. And by the way, Bip, five of the last six games have been decided by a field goal or less in this one. So expect a tight game once again. Okay. And I hate choosing against uh, Pat Fitzgerald, especially at this point in the season. Um, Northwestern kept that game against Wisconsin much closer than folks thought they would, were it not for the turnovers, especially the ones that led to points for the Badgers. Northwestern really had a shot at knocking off Wisconsin. Nebraska is being is fresh off being lambasted by the Buckeyes, and they can't possibly pay, play any worse, I wouldn't imagine. The Wildcats also can't play much worse offensively either and showed some ability to move the ball towards the end of the game last week. But as you mentioned, it's really puzzling as to how Nebraska's passing attack has been um, as bad as it has. It's looked kind of, well, like the Northwestern passing attack at times. But uh, <laughs> with this game being in Nebraska and the Huskers looking to get that taste out of their mouth, I expect them to come out firing. I think they cover the spread, but Northwestern keeps the game within reach. Um, all games similar to how they did against Wisconsin. Unfortunately, I am going to pick the Huskers 24-13 in this one over Northwestern until Northwestern until Northwestern can start to show some semblance of an offense. I just hope uh, to the the Almighty God that I believe in that this is not a repeat of Nebraska Michigan State six uh, three snooze fest last season. Please, dear God, can we get some <laughs> sort of offense going, even if it's anomaly type numbers from what these teams have been showing so far. Dear God, give us two touchdowns for Northwestern. Uh, well, and, and careful what you wish for, because you might say, okay, you're going to get TCU Cal from the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, at this point, so, I don't know which is worse. But uh, so right. go to go to South Bend, Bip. Uh, I believe the Irish are playing a well-known defensive coordinator this weekend. Oh, yes. And I've been looking forward to this game ever since Brian Van Gorder was fired as defensive coordinator of Louisville last year and inexplicably hired by Bowling Green to the same position. Poetic justice that the Irish lose Brian Van Gorder from one opponent and still keep them on his uh, still keep him on their schedule around the time that this offense seems to really be catching their stride. You kind of touched upon it earlier, uh, Chappie. 
Ian Book had a quiet game against Virginia, but Tony Jones had a career high, 131 yards, three touchdowns, while Cole Clement and Chase Claypool continue to dominate the targets and should have big games in this one. The Irish defense played with its hair on fire, collecting 13 tackles for loss, forcing four fumbles, recovering three of them, and picking off two passes. I almost never pick a team to cover a spread like this of 45 and a half points, but this is a, a special circumstance. I think the Irish are going to paste that Bowling Green defense, and this Irish defense will suffocate the Falcons' offense. Lucky for Van Gorder that he knows the South Bend area pretty well because he might not be welcome back on the team bus after this game. I like the Irish to win very big in this one. I'm going to go Notre Dame 60, Bowling Green 13 in this game, Chappie. Okay. I really wish that there was some sort of bet going on to where if Van Gorder keeps the Irish under 60 points, then Brian Kelly has to somehow uh, fasten a disgusting, uh, darkened goatee look that Van Gorder likes to rock <laughs> on his face, and every player on Notre Dame has to wear that for the rest of the season, just as a reminder that you couldn't score 60 on Van Gorder. <laughs> That would that would be unbelievable, and then he's also got to do that Van Gorder fist pump that uh, he became so famous for uh, a couple games into the season right. a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, I um, you know, you, you touched on all the points that I wanted to to get to, and and uh, I'm I, I like Notre Dame in this one, fifty nine to seven. Bowling Green, they not only are they playing bad defense, but they are almost worse on offense than they are on defense. So. Points for, they're 130th in the nation. Points against, 130th in the nation. They're 103rd in rush offense, 117th in pass efficiency offense. Then they're 129th in pass efficiency defense, 127th in rush defense. What they do do well, and really the only category where Bowling Green might have a little bit of an edge, is Bowling Green is 23rd in sacks committed. On the, on the year, whereas Notre Dame is 58th in sacks allowed. So that's the only statistical area where I saw that Bowling Green had any ray of hope, but I don't see it happening in South Bend here. I think that, you know, like we talked about, Van Gorder will once again get exposed and cause people to flood the Bowling Green athletic director with questions of, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost as if the the owner from uh, the Cleveland Indians on Major League took over Bowling Green and looked for the worst possible talent that she could find right. to run that defense, and she found it in Brian Van. Gorder. Right, exactly. Yes, Rachel Phelps running the athletic department there at uh, Bowling Green. So, <laughs> well, that that now officially covers Week Six for us, Bip. So, again, to all you listening, that's Week Six from a couple of dudes with big smiles and we hope your smile is just as big if not bigger and speaking of bigger that's exactly where the stakes are getting as we continue to move further into college football season so don't get caught in the dark make the flip to that podcast in the know your homeboys and a bowl full of chips don't forget to check back in with bip and i next week as we recount this week's main events the pleasant surprises and suffering shockers remember if you want to be more informed than the other guys subscribe and follow us here on a bowl full of chips I am at champion underscore lit, and he is at BFC BIP on Twitter and into your ears like audio glitter. So once again, thanks for joining us. I am Chappie. And I am BIP. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Like they say in Oregon, win the day, everybody. See ya. See ya.